At the beginning of January, the Costa Book Awards judges announced their category winners in biography, poetry, novel, first novel and children's book. Vintage were absolutely thrilled to have two winners. Keggy Carew won for her biography of her father, Dadland, and Alice Oswald won the Poetry Prize for her collection, Falling Awake, which is also shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize. To celebrate, we thought we'd put together a little podcast special. So first of all, we joined Keggy Carew at the London Review Bookshop, where Alex managed to talk to her about her extraordinary journey into the past, where she found out more about her father than she imagined possible. Keggy Carew grew up in the gravitational field of an unorthodox father who, after an adventure-filled war, lived on his wits and his dazzling charm. Later in life, as his memory began to fail, his daughter embarked on a quest to unravel his story and soon found herself in a far more consuming place than she had bargained for. Dadland is the extraordinary result, as its ecstatic reviews have shown. I decided to go and meet Keggy on the road. I've come on a beautiful summer's day to the London Review of Books bookshop, which is very near the British Museum, and I'm joined here by Keggy Carew. We're surrounded by books everywhere in this little basement, but right in front of me on the table is your book, Dadland. Your first book, tell me what it is. Dadland is a memoir. Uh, a very intimate memoir, and it's a biography. It's also a bit of a detective story, and it's um, a very kind of wide-ranging book about um, my family. Basically, it's about Dad, and it's about me, and my search to recover who he was, um, and in the same way, try and understand what happened in our family. Tell us a little bit about your family, about the specifics, and about, and about your dad. Well, my dad was an extraordinarily unorthodox, unconventional, razzle-dazzle kind of character who just caused trouble or fun or something wherever he went. And he was was very fabulous in one, in one sense, but in another, he, he wasn't the easiest person to have a normal life with. Um, he was a guerrilla agent in the war and... Um, that is probably at age 25 where he really reached his full potential and was allowed to live on his wits and really excel and, f and find himself at a very, very early age and was very, very informative, I think. He very was, informative. He time. was part of the SOE, wasn't he? He was part of the SOE and they were, um, he was in a special unit called the Jedbras and they were worked in threes where they were, had a radio, a, a wireless operator and another... Um, uh, speaker and either a French or American uh, officer, um, and they were dropped behind the lines to raise res to raise resistance. And um, then he was dropped in Burma to uh, fight against not fight against the Japanese, but raise resistance, local resistance against the mm -hmm. Japanese, and worked with Aung San Suu Kyi's father, General Aung San. Um, and he was a great ally of his, and got into all sorts of difficulties with the British. Um, because, of course, the Burmese wanted their own independence from the British once they got rid of the Japanese. So it was a quite exciting, sort of adventuresome uh, war for him. Um, but being successful as a guerrilla agent doesn't mean to say you're going to be successful as in peacetime, and he was a pretty hopeless sort of regular soldier. And um, he struggled to find a place that was big enough for him in peacetime. Um, and I think 
yeah, that can be a, a squashing thing for all of us. Um, although he was rarely squashed. <laughs> <laughs> and you really get a sense of that yeah. in this book. I mean, one of the things that, of course, is universal about this book is the fact that we struggle, don't we, to think of our parents' lives before we were born. Yes. We may know the facts of them, yes. but actually trying to inhabit what they were like yes. Is, yes. is a difficult thing, and that's what you've set yourself to do in this book. Well, and you know, and, and how, that, how time shapes people and how they're quite different people. The letters that I was reading from Dad, writing to his parents, calling them Dear Mummy and Daddy, after he'd been a guerrilla agent, you know, well, that, they were incredible. They were... They were a wholly different person. Um, and then as he grew old and then as he got to dementia, he was a wholly different person as Again, well. Yes. But he said, I mean, in one of the interview tapes that I, that I was listening to, he asks himself this, the question, who am I? Um, and it was uh, a question that he wanted the answer to change all the time. He did not want to be the person that he was. Uh, 10 years ago and he did not want to be the same person in five years time he hoped to have developed and to have changed considerably and he did and I think we all do I think we can re retain certain characteristics that, that we have but I think as time goes on we all change so much and I think the contradictory truths um, are often very relevant, relevant in one's own identity but of course, when you write about somebody else and somebody who is so close to you, you are also, in a sense, of course, writing about yourself, oh God, aren't yes. you? Yeah. And here you're writing about yourself as a child with yeah. this father whose life you apprehend in kind of slices and pieces and glimpses. Yes. And then your changing relationship with him. And I just wonder what that was, that was like. That was hell. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it was hell. I mean, it... it one, because one has to relive it, and there were some difficult times to, to, to relive. And what I really wanted to do with Dadland is that I wanted to present a book that was a bit like the experience of what I was going through, so that it was a bit like a kaleidoscopic thing that was going on in my head, where memories of this would come in and then something else would happen, and then I'd read you know, uh, some documents that had Dad, what Dad was doing in the war, and then I'd be catapulted back into some other memory. And I felt that that was a very kind of true way to how we experience life and ourselves, you know, with these thoughts coming in and out. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't always easy, um, and, but it was kind of cathartic in a way because I worked through a lot of things. It was a bit like having a, a free shrink. Because but you were your own shrink. I was my own shrink, but I did understand things when I really, I really delved deep in some areas, and I really understood a lot of, more about my mother than I ever did, and everything sort of found its own balance in the end for me. Um, you can't resolve everything, you know. And the other thing that I was really, that I really wanted to do is I didn't. I wanted to dive back into my teenage years in the way that I was. Remember how angry, cross, furious, jealous, happy, sad I was at the time and, and not shy away from that because that's as valid as anything else. Mm. Can I ask you a little bit too about writing about dementia mm. um, and the way I guess that we tend to see it, which is as a, as a sort of 
a disintegration of, of personality, yeah. whatever personality is. And we've already talked a bit about how it's not fixed, about how it's malleable and it changes over time. Mm. I wondered if you found in writing about it, observing it so closely, a different way to think about, about dementia and what it means to a person. Yeah, I did. I, I, I thought a lot about dementia. Um, watching dad from the very early stages go right through to the, the, the end stages. The most difficult part often is the very early bits when you're aware of something going on and he's aware mm. and he's trying to outwit it as those very moving notes in the book show mm. his, his trying to kind of get round this memory loss problem he was having. And what, what I noticed with him was um, that as each layer was peeled away, he was still his essential self. And even when we got really right down to not much, not much, he couldn't remember hardly anything, certainly not who he was, who I was, his memory for words failed. But his essential self actually was still there. So that the words, the few words that he had were very much dad words. They were yes and marvellous and thank you. And that was incredibly moving and incredibly... Um, yeah, I, he was still a very easy person to love and be around because he still, with what little he had, he still tried to be funny and a good company. But that was because that was very innately within him. Um, but I also thought a lot about caring for people with dementia and it made me think about what, how easy it is to fall down the part, go down the road of trying to control them, trying to make them safe start bossing them around, cleaning their fridge out, doing all that stuff. And that absolutely, I think, is the wrong thing. I think you have to just let them have dementia. Mm. And all you can really do is love them and not try and make... If they fall in the pond, they fall in the pond. That's how I ended up thinking about it. Not do, I, didn't, I think the more we tried to harness Dad in and make him safe and boss him around, the more unhappy he was. Um, and your ultimate aim is just just to, to make somebody as happy as possible in that. Yes, and let them be themselves. Yes. In terms of your journey, I wondered um, what part this book now plays in that process that we all have to go to um, when we lose a loved one of a sort of saying goodbye, but also a retaining of, yeah. of part of them. How does the book fit into that? Well, I think you absolutely described it that is exactly what it is you've lost them but you've actually brought them back and he was definitely worth bringing back um yeah it's been a very very long interesting journey well thank mm. you for taking it and thank you, thank you for sharing some of it with us today the book is wonderful it's so moving it's so unexpected and i think you're absolutely right it does that that fabulous thing of being really specific about somebody but also it will touch everybody i think thank I you so much so. thank you alex thank you Anybody who has seen the poet Alice Oswald at an event will testify that nothing is quite like hearing her read her own poetry. So we managed to get her into the Vintage Podcast Studio to read a selection of poems from her Costa Prize-winning collection, Falling Awake. Here are three of them now for you to sit back and enjoy. Fox. I heard a cough, as if a thief was there. Outside my sleep a sharp intake of air. A fox in her fox fur, stepping across the grass in her black gloves, barked at my house. Just so abrupt and odd, the way she went hungrily asking in the heart's thick accent. 
In such serious, sleepless trespass she came, a woman with a man's voice, but no name. As if to say, it's midnight, and my life is laid beneath my children like gold leaf. Swan. A rotted swan is hurrying away from the plane crash mess of her wings, one here, one there. Getting panicky up out of her clothes and mid-splash looking down again at what a horrible plastic mould of herself split second climbing out of her own cockpit. And lifting away again and bending back for another look thinking, strange, strange, what are those two white clips that connected my strength to its floatings? And lifting away again and bending back for another look at the clean china serving dish of a breastbone and how thickly the symmetrical quill points were threaded in backwards through the leather underdress of the heart, saying, Strange, strange. It's not as if such fastenings could ever contain the regular yearning wingbeat of my evenings, and that surely can't be my own black feet lying poised in their slippers. What a waste of detail. What a heaviness inside each feather. And leaving her life and all its tools with their rusty juices trickling back to the river. She is lifting away. She is taking a last look, thinking, quick, quick, say something to the frozen cloud of the head before it thaws, whose one dead eye is a growing cone of twilight in the middle of winter. It is snowing there, and the bride has just set out to walk to her wedding. But how can she reach the little black-lit church? It is so cold. The bells, like iron angels, hung from one note, keep ringing and ringing. Dunt, a poem for a dried-up river. Very small and damaged and quite dry, a Roman water nymph made of bone tries to summon a river out of limestone. Very eroded, faded, her left arm missing and both legs from the knee down, a Roman water nymph made of bone tries to summon a river out of limestone. Exhausted, utterly worn down, a Roman water nymph made of bone being the last known speaker of her language, she tries to summon a river out of limestone. Little distant sound of dry grass. Try again. A Roman water nymph made of bone. Very endangered now, in a largely unintelligible monotone, she tries to summon a river out of limestone. Little distant sound as of dry grass. Try again. Exquisite bone figurine with upturned urn. In her passionate self-esteem she smiles, looking sideways. She seemingly has no voice but a throat-clearing rustle as of dry grass. Try again. She tries leaning, pouring pure outwardness out of a grey urn. Little slithering sounds as of a rabbit man in full night gear who lies so low in the rickety willow herb that a fox trots out of the woods and over his back and away. Try again. 
she tries leaning, pouring pure outwardness out of a grey urn. Little lapping sounds, yes, as of dry grass secretly drinking. Try again. Little lapping sounds, yes, as of dry grass secretly drinking. Try again. Roman bone figurine, year after year, in a sealed glass case. Having lost the hearing of her surroundings, she struggles to summon a river out of limestone. Little shuffling sound, as of approaching slippers. Year after year, in a sealed glass case. A Roman water nymph made of bone, she struggles to summon a river out of limestone. Little shuffling sound as of a nearly dried up woman, not really moving through the fields, having had the gleam taken out of her to the point where she resembles twilight. Try again. Little shuffling, clicking, she opens the door of the church, little distant sounds of shut away singing. Try again. Little whispering, fidgeting of a shut away congregation, wondering who to pray to, little patter of eyes closing try again. Very small and damaged and quite dry. A Roman water nymph made of bone, she pleads, she pleads a river out of limestone. Little hobbling, tripping of a nearly dried up river, not really moving through the fields, having had the gleam taken out of it to the point where it resembles twilight. Little grumbling, shivering, last ditch attempt at a river, more nettles than water. Try again. Very speechless, very broken old woman. Her left arm missing and both legs from the knee down. She tries to summon a river out of limestone. Little stoved in, sucked thin, low burning glint of stones. Rough sleeping and trembling and clinging to its rights. Victim of Swindon. Puddle midden, slum of overgreened foot churn and pats, whose crayfish are cheap toolkits, made of the mud stirred up when a stone's lifted. It's a pitiable likeness of clear running, struggling to keep up with what's already gone the boat, the wheel, the sluice gate, the two otters larracking along. Go on. And they say, oh, they say, in the days of better rainfall, It would flood through five valleys. There'd be cows and milking stools washed over the garden walls, and when it froze, you could skate for five miles. Yes, go on. Little loose end, shorthand, unrepresented, beautiful, disused route to the sea. Fish path with nearly no fish in. Absolutely amazing stuff. Well, all that remains for us to do now is to keep our fingers crossed for the 31st of January when the Costa Book Awards judges will be announcing their overall winner of the Costa Book of the Year Award. We wish, obviously, the very best to Keki Carew, Alice Oswald and, indeed, all of the other shortlisted authors. We'll be back in February with more podcast goodness. Until then, take care.